0: I want to begin by asking the question, what is God's greatest commandment to you? Do you know it? Do you know what God's greatest commandment is? There's many things that as Christians we're called to do, many commands under which we follow as Christians and followers of Christ, but there is one that exceeds them all, one that is actually called the great commandment. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked this very question by some Pharisees with ill will. What's interesting is in Matthew 22, he could have said a lot of things. What is the greatest commandment? He could have said, well, go to the Ten Commandments, and it's the first. He could have said, well, they're all equally important because all commandments, well, they come from God. But that's not what he said. In Matthew chapter 22, by way of introduction this morning, we see this scenario in verse 34. It says, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus doesn't skip a beat. Verse 37, he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What Jesus answers with is a statement that is profoundly true and ironically piercing to the men asking the question. You see, they were trying to trap him, but Jesus turns it on on them and says, the very thing you're asking is what you are missing, Pharisees. So I want to ask us today, do we love? Do we love? How are we doing with the greatest commandment of them all? Grace Church, I know that we love. I know that, like Peter, we could say, Lord, you, you know that we love you. But my concern is that sometimes we know the right thing, and yet we do not always do. So I want us to turn over, grab a Bible if you have one, and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and First Corinthians. There's a Bible under your seat, or if you brought one... Meet me over in 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 7 this morning in what is often called the love chapter, right? The chapter on love. Some have said this is the greatest chapter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Now, just a little bit of a running start for our context here. We're sandwiched in between chapters 12 and chapter 14. This section is on spiritual gifts, right? Paul is writing because the Corinthians were jacked up in many ways. And one of the ways they had jacked things up was in their view and their misuse of spiritual gifts. And so he writes to correct their view on spiritual gifts. And in chapter 13, he's talking about the heart that is behind it. What must be the guiding uh, motive in the midst of using our spiritual gifts in the body? Now, just a quick refresher on spiritual gifts. If you are a Christian, that is, if you've Turn from your sin and repentance and embrace Christ in faith. Then you have the Holy Spirit of God living within you. Christians, don't, don't grow dull to that fact. The Spirit of God lives in us as Christians. Now, with that, writing the coattails of that in, in part of this indwelling is the fact that you have a spiritual gift. You have been given a gift by the Spirit of God, an endowment, an entrusting of spiritual gifts. And these spiritual gifts are meant for one purpose. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 7 to each one, he's given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. Spiritual gifts, then, are meant for the body. Just as in chapter 12, verse 12, it says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, and so it is with Christ. He goes on to say, One spirit one body, etc. So we are one, and yet each have been given different gifts that work together to build one another up. This is what we understand from the Bible about spiritual gifts. However, like our church today, in the Corinthian church, there was an ungodly emphasis on certain gifts. Hear what I'm saying. An ungodly emphasis on certain gifts in exchange for the essential quality that would produce true unity in the body of Christ. What do you think that one essential quality is that they had exchanged? It's love. It's love. Grace family, this I believe is a great need for us today. If you're doing well in the category of love, praise be to God, but I think we can still excel still more. I believe we need to hear and see from the Bible today that there is a three-pronged attack from sin, from Satan, and from self that would love to destroy us. It would love to destroy our families. It would love to destroy our church. It would love to destroy the whole universal church. Tear us apart in destruction. And I believe the Bible teaches us that the only epoxy strong enough to hold us together, especially amidst a trying time such as now, is this virtue of love. So our big idea for this morning is this. It is that spirit-empowered unity is destroyed by pride, exalted gifts, and is cultivated by self-giving love. It's destroyed by pride-exalted gifts and cultivated by self-giving love. What are these pride-exalted gifts? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I'll read verses 1 to 3. The Apostle Paul speaking. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What we see is that even wonderful spiritual gifts can be misused and lead to destruction. What are these gifts that can destroy unity and lead to the destruction of the church? Well, let's consider them one by one. First, look again at verse 1. I think we see here an unequaled oratory. Unequaled oratory. This is the speaking gift. Now, Paul is using a hypothetical scenario here. He's trying to, to cast a broad swath and, in a sense, use a hyperbole to imagine the greatest speaking gift that one could ever have. This is a, a guy who would speak with all three of the old... Uh, Greek classifications of oratory, pathos, and ethos, and logos. It's a guy who could speak in multiple languages, who would lead revivals and entire movements, not just here in North America, but he's fluent. In several other languages as well. He's the sort of guy that pastors would gather around at a pastor's conference and say, Man, have you seen that guy? He is just crushing it lately. I mean, he was in Mexico, and then he was in Brazil, and then he's over in Europe and in Africa. People are getting saved, pastors are flocking to him to be trained. The hyperbole continues, not only the tongues of men, but even of angels. Now, this is not, I don't believe, a literal uh, understanding. There's no known language of angels. Angels never communicate with man in any other language than that which man already knows. And we're never told to pursue this language. But again, it's hypothetical. It's a hyperbole. It's driving, even if the man's ability to speak becomes so eloquent and so moving, so powerful, that it transcends to the heavens, that it elicits an applause from the heavens, Even still, it's useless without love. It's useless without love. Imagine a beautiful symphony is taking place in a classic concert hall. This is a tuxedo-only event. The spectators are in awe in the balcony above. Only in this scenario, God is the conductor. The spectators are the angels. And at one point, they even rise to their feet in the balcony and, and peer over the edge to see this beautiful symphony that the Lord himself is conducting. The Spirit is bringing to life the music, and the church are the instruments. And then suddenly, the back doors burst open, and in comes Johnny, 12-year-old boy, with his new Christmas present, his drum. Bang, 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 bang. And he walks all the way forward onto the stage, amidst this tuxedo-only classic symphony. Now, he thinks he's playing along. He thinks he's helpful. He thinks he's right with the rest of the crew on the stage. And yet, in this moment, this young boy is nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So is the picture here in verse 1. The point then is that great speaking gifts can become a distraction, a distraction when they're not motivated and carried out by love. Manifestations of this church family may uh, begin in even a small group. They may be in a Sunday school. They may be in a youth ministry. They may be on a Sunday morning in an equipping class or even in churches, some churches in the pulpit. The point is is that when a person becomes so pride exalted in their gift to speak that they lose touch with the heart of love, they become useless. And our nation has seen this time and time again, haven't we? Tragic if you follow the news. Church after church being not only disunified but destroyed Because of pride-exalted gifts in the leader, in the pastor, and the speaker. Dear Christian friends, each of us needs to watch lest we fall in line of those who have pridefully exalted these gifts at the expense of love. Spirit-empowered unity, then, is destroyed when unequaled oratory is not driven by love. Secondly, though, look at verse 2. I think we also see an unrivaled intellect. Look at verse 2. He says, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and his conclusion at the end of 2 is, Without love, even this is nothing. Have you been around people who have an incredible faith in God? right? This undeniable faith that is uncompromising, unswerving, Unmoved. Maybe even some of those people that sometimes you're around and you kind of start to feel bad about your own lack of faith, your own lack of commitment, like, man, this guy is just serious. He's disciplined and committed, and i got to get my act together. Well, we've all probably witnessed this, and on the positive side, we've witnessed people who have persevered in faith amidst just excruciating trials, very difficult circumstances, and yet their faith shines forth. In the Old Testament, Daniel is the prophet that comes to my mind. Daniel and his three friends, they were plucked out of their home, plucked out of their city, taken away from their country, moved a thousand miles to another place, just as teenage boys, and popped into a pagan culture with a pagan king and all the pressures that come with that. And yet Daniel and his three friends, they show show an undeniable faith that never compromises but here's now where Paul stirs the pot. The feathers are ruffled. Even when one has a, has a faith that is as great as Daniel, and yet it's not driven by love, he's nothing. He's nothing. The text says, even if a man can move a mountain but does not have love, he's nothing. Therefore, spirit-empowered unity is again destroyed by undeniable faith when there is no love. Next, if you continue in verse 13, he says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And I want to jump back to the beginning of verse 2. He says, if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries, all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, I, ha- I have not love, I am nothing. Guys, this is not only an undeniable faith, but also an unrivaled intellect. Okay, This is the one who has perfect understanding Of systematic theology. He has a keen ability to biblically counsel. He's got wisdom when it comes to Bible issues. He's the Bible answer man. He's great in counseling, evangelism, maybe even some form of ministry. And yet again, this unrivaled intellect, when there's no love, is actually useless. Just like the one with the undeniable faith, so too the one with an unrivaled intellect where it's not driven by love is actually, in verse 2, Nothing nothing. And so you see, there's great gifts that the Spirit of God gives to all of us. Whether it is the speaking gift, whether it is the intellect gift of understanding mysteries and all knowledge, whether it is the gift of undeniable faith, these things, when not motivated and driven by love, are actually not only neutral, but they're counterproductive to the Spirit-empowered unity that the church is to be living in. Unrivaled intellect, undeniable faith, both Destroy unity when there is no love. Look now at verse 3, and this one is shocking. He says, If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, again, I gain nothing. This then is unbelievable philanthropy. Now, if you've ever been the recipient of a gift, it is humbling, right? Probably appreciated, but humbling. And on the flip side, if you're ever the giver of a gift to someone, it's a great joy to give people and to bless people. But I want you to imagine for a moment, you decide, I'm going to go all in. And you start by selling your TV, pawn it off. And then you sell all the furniture in your living room. And then you sell your bed. And you begin to liquidate your cars. And you say, you know what, honey, I think we need to sell the house, all cash. You know what, I think we need to empty our checking accounts, our savings accounts, the 401k, cash it out. Any sort of financial stability we have. I want to put it all in a pot and what we're going to do is we're going to give it. We're going to give it to the Lord's work. We're going to give it to the Lord's cause. I mean, that would be unbelievable. That would be unheard of. And yet, dear friends, again, according to the word of God, even this an unbelievable act of philanthropy without love gains this person nothing. It is no help in the cause of Christ and moving the mission of the church forward. If you are a great giver, then we praise God for you. But without love, even a great giver can be a source of division in the unity that the church is meant to experience. To say it another way, spirit-empowered unity is destroyed by unbelievable philanthropy when there is no love. Well, fifth and finally from these three verses, we see unyielding martyrdom. Unyielding martyrdom. The word martyr means witness, and we know through church history many were bold witnesses for the cause of Christ. Many were beaten and stoned, even burned at the stake for the cause of Christ. Their faith was incredible, which is a good rhetorical question for us to consider. Am I willing to take this thing to the grave? But there were some scenarios, like many things, where a good thing can be turned bad. Some scenarios where people wanted to do this to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be in the collection of heroes of the faith that parents read to their children in the nighttime. They wanted to be able to boast. Whether boasting of their persecution, boasting of their suffering, boasting of what they've done for Christ overseas or wherever it may be, or even having people boast on them and about them when they're gone. I can tell you one thing. If this is the heart in our sacrifice, if this is is the heart in the great faith that takes a person even to the point of martyrdom, there will will be no boasting in the end. The point is that even tireless sacrifice, unyielding martyrdom, will be rendered as a zero-sum gain when it's not motivated by love. You see then the centrality of love amidst the unity in the body of Christ. Spirit-empowered unity is destroyed by unyielding martyrdom when there is no love. At the end of the day, no one really cares about our gifts. (laughs) No one really cares about what gifts you have and how awesome you are at using it. No one cares if you're a great administrator or if you're a great preacher or if you're a great evangelist or if you're a great counselor. The point of giving gifts and being given gifts is actually to use them in service to others. To say it simply, friends, it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about Christ and the unity that we're after in the body. So we find that good things, and these are all good things, virtues, spiritual gifts even, good things can be turned bad when not driven by love. So how do we, how do we move forward? This is kind of the bad news, right? That's, that's not exciting, although it's, it's good for us to hear. What, though, is our path forward? How do we walk a new path of creating a culture within the church that is healthy, loving, and growing rather than destructive. And I think we're on this path, but I'm encouraging us to excel still more. The answer comes in verses four to seven, and I'll summarize it by saying, it's by self-giving love. By self-giving love, rather than falling into the trap of pridefully exalting certain gifts, the scriptures call us to a spirit-empowered unity that is cultivated by self-giving love. Look at verse four. Paul continues. He says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Here in just four verses, Paul lays out 15 Qualities or 15 characteristics of self-giving love. I think we can find three broad categories of them, though, that we would do well to consider. So first, notice he's speaking of a sympathy toward others. Self-giving love is sympathetic toward others. And the first word that he uses there in verse 4 is the word patience. Patience. Patience is the idea of being long-suffering. It's, it's the opposite of being quick to explode. It's having a long fuse, now just with my childhood growing up when I think of a long fuse my mind takes me back to Wiley e. Coyote always trying to catch Road Runner always designing some sort of contraption and it always turns on himself right But one of the things he would do is he would stretch out a fuse and you remember it'd go over the river it'd go across the road it'd go up the canyon side and he'd be waiting from his perch ready to explode the dynamite stick that's way down the line and somehow it would go wrong and he would never catch him Well again I just use that as an illustration to ask this question, how long is your fuse? How long is your fuse with those who are closest to you? With your spouse, with your kids, with your siblings and your parents. The Spirit of God calls us toward a patience, which means that we have a long fuse to get angry, and that guess what? Even as it whittles down, we restretch it back. We restretch it every time. Lengthening the fuse of our patience. Lengthening the fuse before an explosive act of anger. To be patient is then to continually restretch the fuse time after time after time. The heart of a patient person is the heart that says, I'll take anything. I'll take anything from others. I'm going to absorb anything. That's patience. And friends, this is the only way. The only way to what? The only way to unity. Unity. <laughs> Imagine if we were all on each other's case all the time. If there was no patience in the church, I, for one, would not do well, right? I I require grace and patience at times, and I think if you're honest, so do you. Consider, when people are patient with you, what a wonderful blessing that is. And then I'll actually direct your eyes vertically to consider how patient God is with you. Oh, he is such a patient father, isn't he? So thankful for the patience of God in our lives to allow us to grow slowly over years and even decades in our faith. He is patient and therefore we must also be patient. But this is not something we can just muster up. We can't just dig down deep and say, ah, I'm going to be more patient today. No, it's actually in Galatians 5 verse 22, a fruit of the spirit. So again, we're back to where we started. Spirit-empowered unity is cultivated by patience, which is actually a spiritual fruit. That comes from walking in close step with God. We will offend one another. Let's just agree right now. We will offend one another. But as part of that, let's also agree to forgive one another, to extend grace to one another, and to be patient. Verse four the second aspect of this sympathy toward others is kindness. Kindness. This, on the flip side, is the heart that says, I will give anything to others. Patience is I will take anything from others. Kindness is I will give anything to others. It's this inner quality that desires to be a blessing to other people, right? And in fact, Jesus, I believe, speaks of this kind of kindness in Matthew chapter 5 within this Sermon on the Mount in verse 40 when he says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles, Right? There is a kindness that it's, that its giving is not extended, or it's, its limit of giving is not reached. It extends the limit of giving more and more and more. This kind of kindness begins in the home, right, right within your own home with your immediate family, and overflows into the church and even the world as well. In fact, I think often about this verse in Galatians chapter 6, when he says in verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those of the household of faith. I believe as a church, as a witnessing community that represent the Lord Jesus, we should be people who are marked by kindness. Again, kindness with our family, with our church, but even with the community. So it's worth asking, are you a kind person? Do your friends view you as a kind individual? It's rare. Kindness is rare today. In fact, one pastor once said, if you find a kind friend, keep him close because you won't find many of them. And guys, I think for those who are driven, for the driven athlete or the person with a military background, the businessman, there's a temptation toward being cold and cut and dry and black and white and lacking true kindness But again, within our context, remember the point, spirit-empowered unity is cultivated by a sympathy toward others which expresses itself in patience and also in kindness. The next big category in 1 Corinthians 13 is a selflessness toward others, being selfless toward others. And really, these several qualities here in verses 4 and 5 and 6, they really hit at the vices of our own heart, right? They're going to expose, I think, some things in our own heart. One man said if there's no enemy within, the enemy outside can do us no harm. As is often the case, we are our own worst enemy. We get in the way of who God intends us to be, and yet this, these next few verses point to the fact that we need to change. We need to change. We need to come bare and recognize there are vices, there are sins within that I need to repent of. So let's consider these one by one. Look again at verse four. Love is patient and kind. And then he says, Love does not envy. Envy. I believe the sin of envy on its own can take down a ministry. Envy is desiring not necessarily what another person has, that's coveting, but where another person is. It desires to be in another person's shoes, to experience their fame, their glory, their status, their reputation. It's personal. Envy is a detriment to unity in the body of Christ but it also says boasting, right? Love does not envy, but love also does not boast. Boasting is the other side of the coin. Boasting is causing others to envy at your place or your standing. It's it's bragging about what you've done, who you are, how you've been blessed, your accomplishments, so as to cause others to stumble. This can sometimes take the form of a humble brag right? You can imagine a scenario. Someone would say, yeah, we were over at Dr. MacArthur's house the other night, and I had just done a backflip and landed it on my own two feet, and, and then they were asking me, man, how do you do so many things so well? And that's when I remembered I had to let the dog out. So that's why I'm calling you. Can you let my dog out? Okay, we get the idea, buddy, right? You, you do it though, right? You do it sometimes. We humble brag. We slip in a, a little detail just to let you know how awesome we are and how much I've experienced and how much I've done. This is boasting, and boasting, again, within the context, is detrimental to the spirit-empowered unity that God wants us to have. Love does not boast. Continue on, though. Not only does love not boast, it says it is not arrogant. It is not arrogant. When I think scripturally about arrogant people, I think about King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was the king in Babylon when Daniel and his friends were captured and taken out. And Nebuchadnezzar was so arrogant that he built a gold statue of himself and made people bow down and worship. Well, eventually his arrogance caught up with him. We know in that scenario that God caused him to have a mental condition that made him think that he was a beast or an animal. And so he was out in the field eating grass like a cow or like a horse for seven years. A humbling time for an arrogant king. And yet, by the end of it, I believe his senses were returned, and he turned to the Most High God, the one true God. This is arrogance, though, and maybe you aren't arrogant to that level, but I wonder, is there arrogance within our body? You see, arrogance is, is deeper, in my opinion, than boasting. Boasting can be in a moment, it can be in a humble brag, it can be in a tweet or an Instagram post, but arrogance, arrogance is a demeanor. It's an embraced attitude that says, I have nothing to learn from you. Look what I've done in my life. Look at my resume. Why would I learn from you? Can't you see? I have it all together. (laughs) Hopefully no one would be audacious enough to say that. But do we think it? Do we act it out in our Christian lives? When you think like an arrogant person, the result is that you view others with condescension. You view others as below you, as workers in your army, employees in your business. The arrogant person, though, fails to recognize just one thing. What do you have that you have not been given? Are we not all the recipients of grace unending? Grace undeserved? Well, I worked hard for all that I have. Ah, who gave you the work ethic? And who gave you the strength? Who gave you the mind? Who gave you the air to breathe? Friends, arrogance is a sin that must be repented of. It must be turned aside from. And instead, an embrace of true humility. A few cross-references on this. Remember that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to who? The humble. Jesus did not come to save the healthy, those who think they have it all together. But he actually came to save the sick. We lead, even in our leadership, as servants. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but what? to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And the Apostle Paul said, when I am weak, actually it's then that I am strong. Arrogance destroys unity in the church. And instead we should embrace love, the true epoxy of unity. The passage continues, love is not arrogant, in verse five, or rude, or rude. Now I I can't say this for sure, but I think about examples of rudeness Acts 23 is an intriguing passage to me. The apostle Paul uh, calls a man a whitewashed wall and then he's reprimanded. He says, "Oh, I'm sorry I didn't realize you were in this high position." Is that rudeness? I'm not sure, but the fact is is that I think we all know what rudeness is when we see it. Right? Rudeness is poor manners. It's being rude or crude. It's being graceless. Okay? I think we know people probably in our lives who are great people, right? Sometimes they're very gifted. Sometimes they're very strong in certain areas. They're great to be around on some occasions, but sometimes they're just rude, right? They're just rude and unfriendly, unkind, unthoughtful. What's sad about rude people is they don't always realize it, but they actually hinder the ministry that they're actually trying to do, right? They cut off relationships, they burn bridges, they hurt people's feelings, and it actually limits their impact for the gospel by just a simple thing like being rude, Now, maybe we could wonder and and question, why are people rude? What motivates someone to be rude? I don't know, maybe a few things. Maybe they just are having a bad day, right? But maybe they think it's funny. Maybe they think it's funny to make fun of people, to put them down, to be rude. They don't care about how they are receiving that. Maybe they're just used to being the boss. They're used to people doing exactly what they say all the time. Therefore, they feel the entitlement to be able to be rude to people. In any case, rudeness like the others that we've been seeing here, destroys unity in the body of Christ. Instead, Paul is calling us to the more excellent way. That is the way of love. Love is not rude. Love also does not insist on its own way. I did a little bit of digging here and uh, pulled out a sheet. Ah, here it is. Of 10 reasons why churches have had disagreements, disunity, and even at times church splits, and they all have to do with insisting on one's own way. First, there was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. I thought that was the best. Pastor Blake, that's for you. The the length of the pastor's beard who's leading the worship, there was a big church debate, discussion, over hours and hours spent discussing this, insisting on one's own way. Second, there was a fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the same land for a cemetery. Ah, that's ironic, actually. Insisting on one's own way. There was a church dispute of whether or not to install a restroom stall divider in the women's restroom. Really? Come on. Insisting on one's own way. There was a petition in one church to have all the church staff clean-shaven. No beards allowed. Sorry, Blake, once again. Insisting on one's own way. There was a big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by 10 cents. After many, many debates and arguments, someone finally just gave a dime to settle the issue, insisting on one's own way. There were arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve and should not serve. Two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. Ooh, I'm hitting close to home here. Don't get mad. Okay, in this scenario, one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. Hmm, I'm going to move on. Uh, Our coffee's great. Thank you, Dale, for serving us coffee every Wednesday morning. I appreciate it. Number 10, and finally, there was an argument over whether fake, dusty plants should be removed from the podium. Praise the Lord, we have no fake dusty plants here. One less thing to argue over. Guys, the point is this is that where there is no love, people insist on their own way. And boy, it can be petty sometimes, can't it? Let's avoid that nightmare altogether and instead pursue the more excellent way, which is love. One commentator said this He said, Cure selfishness, and you've just replanted the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine if each one of us woke up each day and said, Lord, Help me to not insist on my own way today. Help me to be about others, to consider the interests and preferences of others as more important than my own. Here's the point, guys. It's possible to use your spiritual gift, but to do so in a selfish way where you're oblivious to the needs and interests and wants of others. So just a few questions here. Are you the one that always has to be right? Are you the one that always has to insist on your own way? Do you struggle when someone else's idea is presented in opposition to yours, and the majority actually goes with that idea? Again, a spirit-empowered unity is cultivated by a self-giving love which does not insist on its own way. Next on the list is not being irritable. Not being irritable. And this is just convicting, right? Especially early in the morning. One sure sign of room for growth in the arena of love is that you're often grumpy or easily irritated. Selfless love is able to get outside of oneself and care for others instead. I'm going to move on. That's just challenging. Think on that over lunch, though. True love is not irritable. Next, true love is not resentful. It is not resentful. Look at your list. Not irritable and not resentful. This is the word logizomai, which is where we get the idea of logging things. This is the bookkeeper's sin. A husband and wife have a small kerfuffle over dinner because of maybe what was cooked or what was presented, and suddenly one of them brings out, well, three months ago you did this, and then a month ago it was this, and then last week it was this. You see the point. The bookkeeper's sin. Friends, love, true love, does not keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't keep a log and review the log and wait for the perfect time to bring out the log. Ah, perfect time. Here's your list of sins over the past 12 years. That is not Christ-like love. Resentment and bitterness, unfortunately for you, if you're the one holding this in, is more damaging to your own heart, to your own soul, than it is to the other people. Are you with me there? This is like a a sort of cancer that you harbor within, and it festers, and it eats you up, and actually can consume your entire life, let alone rob your joy. Spirit-empowered unity is cultivated by a selflessness toward others that is not irritable and is not resentful. Well, this has been challenging for my own heart. I was even praying last night. My one prayer was, Lord, help me, help me personally to live this out more faithfully by the power of the Spirit of God within. And it's already been a challenging morning, but I think there's one more here that we need because the Spirit of God put it in. And the third and final aspect of what true love is, is that it is sheltering of others. Look at verse 6, and I'll read 6 and 7. It says, It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. But rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The point here is that true love, Christ like love, spirit empowered love, does not try to exploit or expose other people. There is, in fact, a disposition of protecting others, especially in the household of God. Now, he starts with what I would call a caveat here. We're not saying that it rejoices at wrong. Love doesn't just say, oh, whatever, sin as you want. It doesn't matter what you do, all are welcome, come as you are and stay as you are. That's not love. But notice the positive side is that love actually rejoices in the truth. So while love does take sin seriously, it doesn't come after the sinner. It doesn't come after the sinner so as to expose or exploit, but it actually rejoices when they see good. Are you a person who rejoices at the truth? And in the context, I think it's fair to say, when the truth is being lived out in the context of love, do you encourage people? Man, Pastor Scott and I talk about this sometimes. There is so little encouragement in the body of Christ. There's instead a skepticism, there's a cynicalism, and really there's just a selfishness, right? That prohibits us from just being encouragers. I want to challenge you based on the authority of the Word of God. Rejoice at the truth when you see it lived out in other people. Rejoice and actually praise God to the other person. Hey, that was such a neat thing I saw you do. Thanks for walking in faith and serving that person. Hey, I saw what you did for that person. I praise God for that. God's at work in your life. Be one who rejoices at the truth because in that way, you are contributing to a great unity in the body of Christ as you're carrying out love. Love rejoices in the truth does not rejoice in wrongdoing. But notice also, love bears all things. Love bears all things. And this is where we get the idea of sheltering of others. Love it has the desire to protect, to shelter, to guard from ridicule and harm. One pastor said, even when a sin is certain, love tries to correct it with the least possible hurt and harm to the guilty person. Love never protects sin, but is anxious to protect the sinner. I thought that was good. There's something in our depravity, though, isn't there? That wickedly so rejoices when we see others' depravity come out. We want to gossip. We want to talk. We want to spread it around. We want others to hear and and hear it from us. Hey, did you hear what so-and-so was doing? Oh, man, did you see what that one guy did or said? Notice, though, Paul uses a superlative. He says, love bears all things. Love doesn't just bear some things, some of the times. No, it actually bears all things. It bears all things. And really, the one word that comes to my mind when I think of this is it's gracious. It's gracious and it's protecting. Not only that, but I think he continues somewhat progressively, love also believes all things. Or it believes the best. True love driven by the Spirit, always opts for the most favorable position toward another. You hear that someone did something, and at first it seems, ah, boy, I don't know about that. True love assumes the best. And even when it's found out that the person really did the thing that they did, it actually assumes the best possible motive in the scenario as well. If you get involved in ministry here at Grace Church, you're going to be involved in dynamics. And what I mean is, you're going to be involved in people's lives. There's going to be hearsay, There's going to be conflicts that you're going to need to work through. And without this sort of love that believes the best, that always looks for the best in people, disunity will follow. And if we don't check it, destruction will follow. Instead, imagine again a culture where everyone was always believing the best about other people all the time. Do you know what that would do? I think it would yield an incredible unity and trust among the body of Christ. Wouldn't you long to have a church that's a safe place? Again, I'm not saying we're not, but I'm saying excel excel still more in creating a safe place where you know that others have your back, where they're going to believe the best about you, where they know that you're a sinner, but you're in process. You can sense it when you talk to people if they're going to believe the best about you or if you can't really trust them. You know. True love believes all things. That is, believe the best. And let me just say one more thing. This starts in the home. It starts in your marriage. Do you believe the best motive about your spouse? Do you believe the best? True love does. But look again, true love not only bears all things, believes all things, but it also hopes all things. And I believe there is a little bit of a progressive element here. I believe this is post-believing all things. Maybe you used to want to believe all things, and you got burned. You got caught. You got betrayed. And now, as a consequence, you've withdrawn. You've said, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with that person. I've given up on them. They're hopeless. I've had enough. Again, Grace Church, let me remind you of our faithful God's example. (laughs) Read your Old Testament, right? Right? As we watch God working with the nation of Israel, his covenant people, he never erred them once. He never did them wrong one time. And yet time and time again, they sin just within the book of Judges alone. There's at least seven cycles of God redeeming them, restoring them, getting them back on track. And they fall. And then they call out for help. And he answers all through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. Our God is a hoping of all things type of God. He is an enduring God. His love is so faithful and patient. And yet, we're so quick to cut people off. I'm done. Well, consider the word of God. Love hopes all things, even when you've been burned and you've been wronged by another. Finally, I believe love's climax is there at the end of verse 7. Love endures all things. Love endures all things. This is the Greek word hypomone which means to bear under, to bear under a weight. It's also used in a military context, which means to hold fast your position at all costs. Do not move, stand your ground. This is the kind of love that when you see it, your jaw drops. You say, dude, you're going to go back and talk to that person again after all they've done to you? After all they've put you through, you're still going to forgive them and talk to them? Yeah. Because that's what true love does. True love endures not just, again, some things. But look at the Bible. It endures all things. Even when you've been hurt. Even when you've been wronged. Time and time and time again. This is the kind of love, though, that at the same time makes a profound impact on people. We want to be unique Christian witnesses. We want to make an impact in this world. Begin to love like this passage says love really is. And just see... Just see what happens if people don't see that something's different about you. This, I think, is the hardcore test of how mature a Christian really is. Do you love with an enduring love? Spirit-empowered unity, then, is cultivated by the sheltering of others, which is seen in bearing, believing, hoping, and enduring. So, this is our passage. I want to ask, what's our takeaway for this morning? Maybe the Spirit of God is already prompting your heart and exposing areas where you need to change. If that's so, praise be to God. Don't run from that. That's a good thing. Be humble, confess your sin, repent, and turn to Christ to help you to be more loving. But I want to just summarize a few other things that I think would be good for us to think about as takeaways here this morning. The first is that I believe we need to reevaluate our spiritual gifts and the use of our gifts in order to be in line with God's purpose for gifts. Guys, again, gifts are not Everything. Spiritual gifts are not an end in themselves. As I noted earlier, people really don't care how gifted you are. Instead, we ought to reconsider and think about, Lord, how can I just be part of what you're doing in this body? How can I help edify, right, In, in, in midst of equipping the saints? How can I be part of that process to help edify the body? How can I help cultivate unity within the body? So, are you using your gifts? And if so, are you driven by love in the use of your spiritual gift? But second of all, I think we need to take away the fact that the virtue of true love, true Christ-like love, is indispensable. I've titled this message, When the Greatest of These Goes Missing. I got that from the end of this chapter, verse 13. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide in these three. But the greatest is love. And guys, I, I just don't want us to miss my heart just for myself and for our church, is that we don't miss this greatest of these, this one great thing that was also the greatest commandment, which is to love. The virtue of true Christ-like love is indispensable and she should be pursued as the greatest of these. You know, it's an interesting thought. 1 John 4.8 tells us something about God. It says what? God is Love. We know from Hebrews chapter 1 and other passages that Jesus Christ was the exact representation of God's nature. So, if you want to know what God is like, look at the life of Jesus. What we see in the life of Jesus is that he was the full embodiment of this kind of love, don't we? Consider reading verses 4 through 7 this way and read along with me Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Praise be to God. But now I think the challenging aspect, again I'm considering we ought to pursue this sort of love, is now plug your name in this passage. How does it fit? Is it true characteristically? And if not, what do you do? Well, again, guys, we can't just crank this out. You can't just go home today and say, oh, I'm just gonna love better. I'm just gonna be a better lover of people. It's good desire, but frankly, we don't have the right stuff, right? We're not even able to do this on our own. So the first step to living out this kind of love and experiencing the kind of unity that God wants in the body of Christ, the first step is to come to Jesus in humility and in faith and repentance. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, if you've just been a church goer all your life, you've known about Jesus and you've been around the fringe but you don't have a personal relationship with him, then your first step in application of this message is to bow down and worship the one true king, maybe for the first time. To say, Lord, I'm a sinner, will you forgive me? I want forgiveness and I wanna follow you. I want you to be the point of my life And he will by no means cast you out. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. That's your first step. Now, if you're in Christ and you're recognizing here this morning, my love is actually dull. My affections are lackluster. What do I do? Really, it's the same process. We come to Jesus and we lay ourselves bare and we say, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I'm selfish. And I do not love like you call me to love. But now, Lord, by the power of your Spirit, would you do a work in my heart and allow me to begin to walk in the Spirit, to exude a fruit of the Spirit that is unique. God, I pray that I would be a better lover of people and a better lover of you. Guys, that's the takeaway. This second takeaway is to pursue this indispensable quality of love, but we do, th- we do so through the power of the Spirit, not in our own flesh, not in our own strength. It is my hope and prayer that this church would, as we continue to grow that we would also grow in this one indispensable quality, this quality of true Christ-like love. And that as such, we would experience such a unique and profound unity that the outside world goes, and can't hardly believe it. Are you with me in that?